some great testimonies too during our baptismal service. So what a, a neat morning to worship. Well, please uh, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Uh, Exodus, the, the second book there in your Bible. Exodus chapter 12. And as you turn there, uh, just for those of you who may be uh, newer to our church or may be visiting with us for the first time, uh, what's going on this morning is we're kind of in the, the, the middle of a series called The Promise of the Gospel, Seeing Christ in All of Scripture. And we've been uh, going through the book of Luke, and we finished that. And uh, actually, I was talking to someone last night, and you know, we're, we typically go through books of the New Testament in our Sunday morning times together. And I, I mentioned a few weeks ago that at our current pace, it'll take a mere 28 years to get through the New Testament. And I was feeling pretty good about that. But uh, last night, someone approached me and said, uh, Daniel, not all of us may have 28 years. Uh, I hadn't thought of that. Um, it's kind of very selfish. I just kind of think about myself there. Um, I may not have time. Who knows? But uh, let's see what happens um, by God's grace. But anyway, that's what we're doing now is we're taking just a few uh, weeks here and we're, we're trying to get a, 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 a grasp on the big picture of the Old Testament, the big themes, and of course, the, the major theme, which is uh, Jesus Christ, the, the promise of of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think this has been an encouraging series for me, and for many of you have mentioned this has been helpful for you, because it's so hard for us to sometimes understand what's taking place as we open up our Bibles and come to some story in the Old Testament to understand how it fits into the overarching narrative, the overarching story of Scripture. And so that's what we're doing in this series. We're seeing the promise of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, somehow on every page, somehow the, the gospel of Jesus Christ revealed in some way, either his work or his ministry, the promise of the gospel or the need for the gospel on every page. And so we're going to continue to do that this morning as we look at, this, at Exodus chapter 12, and we see a little bit of the story of the Passover lamb. And just to give you a little bit of the context of this story, uh, we've been in, in, in the book of Genesis, now we're in the book of Exodus, and we'll talk more about this in a moment, but here in Exodus these, uh, these, these words are spoken by the Lord to Moses, and Moses is trying to get the Israelites out of Egypt by God's mighty hand. And so this is the, the part of the story where there have been these other nine plagues, and now the Lord is preparing Moses for this, this tenth plague, which will be the death of every firstborn son in the land of Egypt. And so listen to what uh, the words of the Lord are to Moses as he tells him of what he and the Israelites are to do to be delivered from this, this certain death of the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt. And if you're able to this morning, if you'd stand with me as we read God's word together in honor of, of God. This is uh, Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. We're seeing the gospel in Exodus, and we're going to look at the first uh, 13 verses from chapter 12. I'm reading from a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbors shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel 
shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord, and the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You may be seated. May God instruct us, encourage us, strengthen us through his word this morning. Uh, Let me pray for us as we continue our time of worship. Father, we thank you for the Passover lamb. We thank you for the picture of the lamb here, the things we learn about your son Jesus even in, in these verses, and we pray that our hearts would receive these things, that our lives would be transformed as we consider Christ our Passover lamb. And we pray this in his name, amen. On Thursday night, my family and I were at the shops, Grand Prairie, and we were in the old Navy store, and the six of us are in the store, and it didn't take too long for the boys and I to decide we, we had seen enough of the inside of Old Navy, and the girls still had some things to do, and so we decided to walk out, and there's, it's kind of late at night, most of the stores were closed, and so we're just kind of wandering around the mall, and we came to that uh, the memorial, the Holocaust memorial that's there at the shops of Grand Prairie. We're kind of looking at this, and my sons were kind of coming close to the glass and looking at the different buttons. And my younger son asked me, he said, now, now Dad, what, what do all these buttons mean? And I realized that we had never talked about this Holocaust memorial. I mean, he's been by it, you know, more times than... Um, I would like to admit, you know, and they're, they're at the mall. And so he's seen all these buttons, and he's seen these, these glass displays. He's seen these 11 million buttons in these glass displays, but they're just button displays to him. So he's looking at these buttons, and he looks at, at you know, kind of the individual buttons. And he says, Dad, what, what do these buttons mean? I said, well, well Noah, those buttons are, are representative of, of the people who died in the Holocaust. He said there were six million Jews who were killed during the Holocaust. And each of those buttons represents a person, a mom or a dad, a brother or a sister or a friend. Each of those, those buttons represents a person who died at the hands of the Nazi regime. It got very solemn. He looked at the buttons in a, in a different way. He began to ask me questions about the Holocaust, and I tried to answer them in age-appropriate ways. You know, but the, but the obvious questions that, that all of us still struggle with as we think about that, that period of history and that, that atrocity. You know, how could they do this? Why would they do this? Why would people let them do this? And, and asking me all the questions that are so hard to fathom, all of them prompted by his understanding of that image 
his understanding of these buttons and these glass cases weren't just simply, here's some nice decorations in our big button collection, but, but these buttons represent something. The image of a button conveys this, this idea of, of an individual. And, and, and you look at this, this memorial display, and, and it, it, it doesn't help you understand it necessarily, but it helps you be able to, to fathom some aspects of the Holocaust. And you're able to, to look at an individual button, and then you're able to see that button in, in context of all the other 11 million buttons. And, and, and you, again, you can't understand it, but that image helps you understand something about the Holocaust. It helped my son begin to be exposed to this idea of the Holocaust and its unfathomable evil. But what he needed first, before he could understand the richness of that image, that, that haunting imagery of the buttons, what he needed first was some sort of historical context, right? Apart from understanding what those buttons were to represent, they were just buttons. They didn't mean anything. This morning, we're exposed to a, a very powerful and very haunting image. In fact, there's an image in Scripture that, that appears over and over again, and, and that image is Jesus Christ as a lamb. You come to the book of, of John, for example, the Gospel of John, and, and John the Baptist sees Jesus Christ, and he, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the, the sins of the world. And you come later into the book of Revelation, and, and all throughout the book of Revelation, Jesus is presented as the Lamb of God. You come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and, and Paul says, uh, Christ is our Passover Lamb. Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. You, you look at 1 Peter 1, 18, and, and Peter writes, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or defect. There's this image that we see in Scripture of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. But sometimes I think we perhaps don't really grasp the, the richness of that image. We don't understand the haunting tragedy of that image. Sometimes we think, oh, Jesus is a lamb. It's like, you know, he's this, this, this fluffy, gentle guy. And, and, you know, like a little lamb kind of plays around in the pasture. Jesus is a lamb. He's kind of like our, our friend. Mary had a little lamb. I have Jesus the lamb. But as we come to the Old Testament, the image of Jesus Christ as a lamb becomes much more rich and deep and tragic and haunting. And I believe that as we come to a passage like Exodus 12 that really lays the groundwork for us understanding Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God, it helps us understand what we're supposed to do with the image of Christ as lamb. What does it mean that, that Scripture portrays Jesus Christ as a lamb? What does it mean that, that here in the Passover, God tells Moses that they're to take a lamb and, and, and slaughter it, and its, its blood is to cover the doorpost and protect them from this, this angel that's going to pass over? The question that I want you to ask yourselves this morning as we look at this portion of Scripture together, the question that I want to be on your, your hearts and minds as we look at Exodus 12, verses 1 through 13, I want you to say, how does this image of Jesus Christ as the Passover lamb transform me? 
how does contemplating Jesus Christ as lamb change me? How does it how does it change me to know that Jesus Christ is my Passover lamb, that, that I, I've been bought not and, and redeemed not with perishable things like gold or silver or, you know, dollar bills, but to have re- been redeemed by the blood of Christ, our Passover lamb, without spot or, or blemish, without defect. How does that image transform me? And I, again, would suggest to you that understanding what it means that Christ is the Passover lamb by looking at the Old Testament helps us understand who the person of Jesus is much more richly and much more deeply. So what we're going to do first is we're going to look at the gospel in Exodus, the the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ here in Exodus chapter 12, and then we're going to put it in the context of of God's grand plan of redemption. So let's first look at the gospel in Exodus, and as you hopefully are already there or close to Exodus 12, let me kind of remind you where we are in the series, especially for those of you who may not have have been with us uh, before this morning or until recently. We began uh, in the book of Genesis, and remember the book of Genesis, you begin in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis with the story of God's creation. And as you have the story of God's creation, what you see is that, that God creates this perfect universe. And in this perfect universe, he creates a man and he creates a woman, and, and Adam and Eve are there in the Garden of Eden, and in Genesis chapter 2, we see that they are in perfect relationship with God. The relationship between humanity and God is perfect. They are existing in the land and they're given things to do there in the Garden of Eden. They're to, to work and to, to do things or to be creative. And, and yet, as they do that, there's, there's rest and there's joy and there's satisfaction in the work that they're called to do and in the relationship with God. And so there, there's perfect harmony. And then we come to Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, we have the story of the fall where man disobeys God. And the relationship that has been perfect to date, and now sin enters into the world, and, and that relationship is, is torn asunder. We see that death enters the world through Adam's sin. And we see God punish Adam and Eve. We see these, these curses that are, that are told to Adam and Eve. And yet, even in the, the curses that are proclaimed, there's, there's grace. The curse of the toil that, that Adam and Eve are going to have to, to engage in, that the, 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 the curse of, of the pain in, in childbearing, and the curse of, of sin in the world, all those things are, are things that allow Adam and Eve and their descendants to understand that, that things aren't as they ought to be. You see, without those things, men and women would continue to live their lives, not recognizing that, that something's missing. And so we see that, that in God's punishment, there's also grace, that, that people understand, look, my relationship with God is not how it ought to be. We also see as God delivers these curses, we also see the gospel. In his curse to the serpent, he says that you shall, he shall crush your head. You shall strike his heel. We see there that, that there's a descendant of the woman coming. And one of the descendants of the woman is, is going to, to deal with the curse of sin. And, and that, that story there in Genesis chapter 3 helps us understand all the rest of Scripture. We understand why there's sin. We understand why the the breach in relationship with God exists, and we understand why sin is in the world, and there's a a longing to be reunited with God. We also see how in the rest of the Old Testament, there's this yearning for a a coming descendant who will deal 
with sin. As you go through the rest of the book of Genesis, as we, as we, as we kind of looked at in the last couple of weeks, you see that, that these genealogies that the, the writer of Genesis presents for us aren't just kind of random, hey, here's a, here's a family tree, just kind of want to throw this in there, and have some empty space I need to fill. Uh, no, th- these, these genealogies that the writer of Genesis is giving us, that Moses is giving us, help us understand and help us trace this, this descendant of the woman and, and, and other branches from her and, and help us understand where this, this coming deliverer is going to be. And, and then we come to Genesis chapter 12 that we looked at last week. And in Genesis chapter 12, we see that God chooses Abraham to, to bless and he promises Abraham a kingdom, a kingdom that's going to have a, a land, a place for them to have the kingdom. There's going to be descendants, people in the kingdom. There's going to be particularly one descendant that's coming. There's also going to be a blessing. As God establishes this kingdom through Abraham's descendant, all the nations are going to be blessed. There's ex- this expansive blessing. And as you look at Genesis chapter 12, again, that helps you understand everything else in the Old Testament, everything else in Scripture, that you see why the idea of Israel coming into the land is so important. It's not just a geography lesson. It's, it's God's faithfulness to his covenant to provide this place for a kingdom to be. You see why the story of the monarchy and these kings are so important, not just because it's, it's these character studies and how one king is good and one king's bad. It's, it's a character study in how Israel is, is yearning and longing for this ultimate king that's going to fulfill what God promised to Abraham. You see why there's this yearning for blessing. You see the failure of Israel to be the blessing that God has called her to be. Well, we're now in the book of Exodus. And as we come to Exodus, we looked at uh, Genesis the last couple weeks, and you come to Exodus, and maybe you need a little bit of a refresher as to what's taking place before we come to Exodus chapter 12. And remember, God and Genesis chapter 12 promises Abraham land, seed, blessing. He promises him this kingdom. And then throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, we see the descendants of Abraham, and, and we see the patriarchs, and we see God's preservation of this, 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 this fledgling family. We see how he preserves their line. We see Joseph go to Egypt, and we see him, uh, God preserve his family and the, his, his brothers, the, the 12 tribes of Israel, through their time in Egypt. Now, when we come to the book of Exodus, uh, things aren't going so well for the descendants of, of Jacob, for the Israelites. Now, in Exodus chapter 1, the Israelites are put into slavery, and throughout the, the rest of the, the first couple chapters of Exodus, we see God working through Moses to begin to deliver his people. As we come to Exodus chapter 12, we've seen that Moses has appeared before Pharaoh on several occasions and has has implored upon Pharaoh to let his people go to release them from slavery so they can worship Yahweh God. And Pharaoh has consistently and persistently refused. So now we come to Exodus chapter 12. And we know that there's about to come a tenth plague. And this tenth plague is going to be by far the worst yet. It's going to require the life of every firstborn son in Egypt, from the lowest born person to the person born in Pharaoh's household, Moses says. And so, with that context, we see that God tells Moses to take a a lamb, 
a Passover lamb. And as I've already suggested this morning, that, that Passover lamb is a, a picture, it's an image of the person of Jesus Christ. And what I want us to do is I want us to consider four things about this, this image of the Lamb of God that help us understand who Jesus is. Here's the first thing I want us to learn from this imagery in these verses. Number one, number one, the Lamb of God is needed by everyone. The Lamb of God is needed by everyone. Look at the text with me, if you would, here in Exodus 12. The Lord is speaking to Moses and we see, first of all, that this is a very big deal. He says, in fact, you're to orient your entire calendar around what's going to take place. The, the bondage that Israel is in is a, a physical bondage, but as you trace this throughout the rest of the Scriptures, they look back on what's taking place in Egypt. It's also a picture of, of spiritual bondage. And, and God's deliverance of his people here is to be this, 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 uh, this act of such great redemptive importance that they're to orient their entire year around celebrating it. He says, uh, then he says in verse 3, he says, tell all, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for each household. Now, it might be tempting for us as we come to this portion of the book of Exodus to think, well, uh, maybe this lamb is, is only for like the really bad households of Israel. So you've got Moses, and he's been doing well, and Aaron, they've been working to get the people free. But, but man, some of the Israelites, they're not really on board, and so those are the people who need a Passover lamb. No, that's not the case. It says every household needs this. In fact, I, I think it's important for us to understand that, that uh, as we look at the comparison between the Israelites and the Egyptians, God doesn't say, and again, I think this is very hard, and a, and a superficial reading of the book of Exodus won't help us see this. But as we look closer at the comparison between the Egyptians and the Israelites, we see that God didn't save the Israelites because they were just the really good people. In other words, you don't say, well, the Egyptians are the bad guys, and the Israelites are the good guys, and so God decided to, to save the Israelites. The Israelites didn't need any, any save. They weren't, they weren't deserving of any sort of punishment. And so God, God punished the Egyptians and didn't punish the Israelites. And now, as you read through the book of Exodus, what you see is that the Israelites are, are uh, you know, they're no spiritual giants. In fact, as, as God describes what he's about to do to, the, to Moses in a few, a few chapters earlier, in Exodus chapter 6, as he's talking to Moses about what he's going to, doing, going to be doing. He says, look, uh, you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh... For with a strong hand he will send them, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And then he says in verse 2, I am Yahweh, I'm the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but my, my name Yahweh, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. And I've, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. God says, look, I'm going to act because I'm Almighty God, and I've promised to act. Again, if we don't understand these stories in the context of God's great overarching plan of redemption, we miss something. We think, well, this is just a story about Moses, or this is just a story about Aaron, or what a jerk Pharaoh was. No, that's not a right understanding of what's going on here. This is a story about God. 
I think one of the hardest things for those of us who've come into relationship with God to understand at points is that I am just in I am just as in need of God's grace as my worst enemy. Apart from the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, the Israelites' firstborn sons are just as dead as the Egyptians' sons. All of us need the Lamb of God. Just thinking this past week, maybe you've uh, been watching the news as well. I've been trying to avoid it because it's so frustrating and infuriating. But, you know, there's this government shutdown. And as you look at this government shutdown and kind of hear different sides talking, uh, at least from from my perspective, I I don't hear um, very kind words, right? Uh, I don't hear hear people saying, you know what, uh, you know, me and my colleague here disagree, but he's a nice guy. No, it's, it's, it's not only do we disagree with one another, but I, I think this person is the devil. Uh, they're a liar. This person wants to starve children. This person hates the elderly. This person hates this. This person's a liar. This person just, just, just attacks, right? And, you know, it, it, it flows into uh, conversations with, that I see my friends having on Facebook. You know, you're a liar. You hate children. You know, just, just crazy things, right? Our tendency is to look at others and see how badly they need God. <laughs> Our tendency is to look at others and say, man, that person is, is really a person who's in need of God's grace. And as we look at Exodus chapter 12 and, and see the image of the lamb, what do we see? We see the lamb is not needed for other people. The, the lamb is needed for me. I, I am a person in need of the blood of the lamb. How do we apply this? practically how does this image of the lamb of god uh, affect us and, and change us well i think the understanding of the lamb this image of the lamb of god transforms us in many ways i think that it causes me to understand that that i'm in need of god's grace that i'm a person who needs god's forgiveness you know i think there are several signs that that a person doesn't understand the transforming work of, of the Lamb. I think there are several signs that a person doesn't quite understand that they're a person who's in need of God's grace. You know, if, if, if we have this thought, if I have the thought, you know what, um, God, God needed to do less to save me than other people. I mean, I know I needed God's help, but as I look at me and I look at this other guy, I mean, God really had to do a miracle in their lives, right? You think about the, the baptismal, baptismal testimonies we had earlier this morning, and you look, well, that guy, man, he, God really had to do a work to save him, but man, that, that, uh, that precious uh, young girl, I mean, you know, that probably wasn't very hard for God to save her. All of us are those who need God's grace. Another question that we might ask ourselves, or another sign, I think, that we don't understand God's grace is, is uh, when my thoughts are more consumed with how others have wronged me than they are with how I need God's grace to sanctify me and transform me. If you're married and I were to give a a paper to you and a pen and say, hey, I want you to write down all the ways that your spouse has ever wronged you, how well would you do on that list? 
And then I said, now I want you to write down all the ways that you've wronged your spouse. What consumes more of your time? What consumes more of your energy? If I were to tell you, hey, I want you to kind of, here's another piece of paper, and I want you to write down all the ways that people at work have really messed with you. I want you to write down all the ways that people at work have, have really messed you up and have not done the right thing. Would that be a pretty easy list to begin to compile? <laughs> and then if I were to say, now I want you to write a list of all the ways that you failed to be the beacon of truth and light in the workplace that God has called you to be. I want, I want you to write down the relational failings you've had that you've been responsible for. Would that be a much harder list to write? I think for many of us, it, it would be. And, and what happens is, I, I look at this image of the Lamb of God, and I say, you know what? Uh, every person needed the Lamb of God. It's not like some are exempt and, and some are okay. Every person needs the Lamb. That's the first image that I want us to see as we look at this image of the Lamb here in Exodus chapter 12. Here's the second thing that I want you to see. Here's the second thing. The Lamb of God, we also see in these first four verses, is an innocent victim. Why, why does God choose a lamb here? It says in, in verse 3 again, you know, you, you take this lamb. Uh, if household is too small for a lamb, then you and, and your neighbors, according to how many there are, then, then make account for the lamb. And, and, and all of you take this, this lamb. Now, now, why a lamb? Why a lamb? Why that imagery? Well, in this culture, a lamb was a, and continues to be a, a picture of, of innocence. A picture of innocence. You think about uh, if you're on a walk one day and you come across the carcass of a gazelle, you see a lion and a lamb, no one ever blames the lamb. Man, that, that either that lion or lamb tore that poor gazelle apart. You, you kind of tend to go with the gazelle, or the, with the lion, right? A lamb is, is a picture of innocence. As you go through Scripture, there's these, these, these pictures of an innocent lamb. And, uh, for example, uh, in Jeremiah eleven nineteen, I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. In Isaiah 53, describing Jesus, again, it describes him, it describes him, uh, him as a lamb and, and us as a lamb. There's this picture of, of, of Jesus as a, a lamb that's led to slaughter in Isaiah 53, 7. And, and we're the sheep that go astray in the verse before in Isaiah 53, 6. And so there's, there's this picture of a lamb as, as innocent and as, as one who isn't deserving of, of death. In fact, I would argue this. And I want to say this carefully. There should be part of us that as we think about some aspects of the gospel, there should be a part of us that is repulsed. Not because of what God has done, but a part of us that's repulsed as we consider our own actions. Sinful actions that lead to the death of the innocent, that lead to the death of the lamb. As we think about the slaughter of a lamb, here in Exodus chapter 12, it, it's a bloody picture. You, you take this lamb and you kill it. You eat it. You put the blood on the, on the doorpost. It's, it, it, it's, it's, this, it's this gruesome picture in many ways. Innocence is destroyed. It's the ugliness of sin that harms the innocent. In fact, I, I would argue this too. I would argue that to not be bothered by the effects of sin upon those 
who are innocent is a sign that we don't rightly understand the gospel. A person who's looked at this image of the Lamb of God and has seen the innocence of Jesus Christ slaughtered for us, dying for us, a person who who thinks about that image is is going to be transformed and is going to be bothered by the effects of sin, uh, not only on on, on the lamb, but, but on the, the people who are around them. This, this picture of innocence destroyed also reminds us of the, the far-reaching effects of sin in our lives on other people, our, our children or our friends or our fellow students or our parents. Sin never stays isolated in, in some sort of secret corner of our heart. In fact, sometimes we may think, I've, you know, I, I've, I've committed this secret sin and no one knows about it, so I can just kind of deal with it in my heart and it'll never have effects in other people's lives. And we don't understand that's not what sin does. Even if people don't know about the, the secret sins in our heart, our, our wrong thoughts or actions or, or things we've done that we thought were secret, there's rippling effects in the lives of others. And again, a failure to understand that, I believe, is a sign that a person hasn't understood the gospel. A few years ago, I had my, my first, uh, you know, as a family pastor at uh, Bethany in Peoria, I had my first uh, counseling case that involved a, a spouse who had committed adultery. And as I was talking with this couple, and they were, you know, the, the husband was kind of talking about what he had done, it was very tragic. It was very tragic. Because what he wanted to do was he, he wanted to, to keep this, this sin kind of encapsulated. He wanted to say, you know what, I, I know that this was wrong, but it's kind of a, it was this action, and, and I don't want to keep talking about it. I don't want to deal with it. I just, you know, just, just kind of, I just want to be left alone. And let's talk about how I can get this, this thing to go away. My encouragement to him was, hey, I, th- I think what you need to do is just kind of sit down and just begin to even list out the far-reaching effects that this sin is going to have, not only in your relationship with your wife, but even if they don't know about it, your relationship with your kids, your relationship with your friends, your uh, sin has far-reaching effects upon those who are innocent. The Lamb of God is an innocent victim, and this this picture of the Lamb of God here should help us understand the the travesty of our sin. And and the the good news of the gospel is, of course, that grace and forgiveness is provided by the perfection of the Lamb. But but I need to understand that that, uh, as I see this this image of of the Lamb of God, I need to to understand how terrible sin is, and and sin is a contrast to the the innocence of the Lamb, and I I need to hate sin and and see what it does to the name of the God I love and the people I love. The Lamb of God here is an innocent victim. I see sin as, as, as tragic when it's contrasted with the innocence of the Lamb. Here's the third thing that I think we need to understand as we look at this, this picture of the Lamb of God. The third thing we need to understand is that the Lamb of God is perfect. The Lamb of God is perfect. When we say that the Lamb of God is an innocent victim, we're, we're talking there about his, his moral culpability. There's, there's innocence here. Now, now when we say that he's, he's perfect, we're talking about his, his value. And look at what the text says again here in Exodus chapter 12. He says, you shall, your, your Lamb, this is verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. And you may take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it from the 14th day of this month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And so there was this idea that the lamb of God was to be 
without blemish. The sacrifice was to be perfect. Now, I want you to keep your finger there in Exodus chapter 12. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Why was it so important that the Lamb of God be perfect? Why did it need to be without blemish? And I want you to turn over to the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, right before you get to the book of Matthew in the New Testament. Malachi, and in Malachi we encounter just a, a terrible picture, a very sad picture. In Malachi, we encounter a picture of a, the people of God who have been in exile. They've been removed from the land, and they've come back into the land, and worship is resuming at the temple. Sacrifices are resuming. And we see that the people have hearts that are very hard toward God. And it's, it's displayed it's displayed in the types of sacrifices that they're offering. Here's, here's what God says. This is, uh, let's start in verse, well, we'll start in verse uh, 7. He said, this is kind of the middle of the verse. He says, but you say, how have we polluted you? He says, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. And listen to the sacrifices that they're offering. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the, I love this verse. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering from my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. He goes on at the end of the, the chapter. He says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Why does God care? Seriously, why does God care? I mean, if I've got a really good lamb, and then I've got this, this you know, defective lamb, and I'm about to, to kill one of them, I mean, why not just, why not just kill the bad one? What's, what's the big, I mean, it's not like God needs money or something. He's not some, uh, you know, some guy interested in accumulating a lot of physical resources and, and, and really wants to, 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 you know, his investment portfolio to, to turn around or something. Why does he care? Whenever our, our daughter Hannah was born, um, you know, it's, it's our firstborn, and so we, we have this idea that, um, we as as parents need to make sure that she has um, like the best physical things that we can provide for her. And so, you know, I think see, she was born in April, and then her her first Christmas, we we um, get these elaborate toys and uh, nothing, right? I mean, there's there's no comprehension that this is a thing of value, and she just kind of you know, as a kid, you know, eight month old or whatever, just kind of stares at it and and drools on it and stuff and cries. And, well, this this isn't very good. So for her first birthday, Whitney and I were talking about him saying, you know what? That kid loves boxes. I mean, seriously, that kid just she can't get enough of boxes. 
I'm giving her a box for her first birthday. She said, what do you, you can't give her a box. Said, yeah, she'll love it. Tell what, we'll get her a, a, thing, a little thing of blocks, like $1.99 and a box, and she's going to love it. And sure enough, loved it. No sense of value, right? She's gotten better. Why does God care? Why does God care? You know why he cares? Because he loves you. And he knows that you need to understand the value of his son. You see, the value of the sacrifice reveals the, the value of the one that it's representing. These lambs are a picture of Jesus Christ. And if you're going to understand the value of his son, you need to understand the value of a, of a sacrifice and of, of giving up something of value so that you understand the value of his name. And, and what God is saying here in Malachi chapter 1 is, look, when you offer these, these crummy sacrifices, you're making me look bad. And when you make me look bad, it's not good for you. I, I want you to be joyful, and, and I want you to find that, that I am the source of ultimate joy and contentment and satisfaction and, and life everlasting. And when you offer these crummy sacrifices, you don't understand how wonderful I am and how joy can be found only in me. You're finding joy in these, in these little lambs. That's not going to bring long-lasting happiness. That's going to lead to ruin and misery as we come to the person of Jesus, if you don't understand his all-satisfying, all-encompassing perfection, you are never, you are never going to be growing in the Christian life as God has called you to be. You see, what happens is this. We have this value system. And if we understand the Lamb of God is perfect, he's without defect, Jesus Christ is perfect, in him all perfection is found. What happens is this. I, I say, okay, I understand that. And now uh, some various sin comes along. Uh, here comes materialism. And I compare materialism to Jesus Christ. And I say, eh, not all that valuable to me. And I don't pursue it. I, I come across immorality. And I say, immorality. And I understand there's, there's pleasure in that. And there's, there's, there's a limited joy in pursuing that. But then I compare it to Jesus. I say, eh, not, not, no, no value compared to the value of knowing and loving Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God is perfect. The Lamb of God is perfect, and we must understand that if we're to pursue him rightly. Compare everything in your life to Christ and find Christ worth more. Here's the fourth thing that we see about the Lamb of God here. The fourth thing we see about the Lamb of God is the Lamb of God is a substitute. He's a substitute. Again, listen to what happens here in Exodus chapter 12. As we see this, this sacrifice described, it's, he's, he's, he's talked about what we are to do, and he says, um, let's go to verse 12. God says, I'm, I'm going to pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I'm going to strike the firstborn, and, and both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I'm going to execute judgment, but but I am the Lord, and the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I'm going to pass over you. The people of Israel are saved not on the basis of their own righteousness. They're saved on the basis of the blood of, of someone else, of something else. The blood is looked upon, and in that blood, the blood of Jesus Christ 
to sin. The same is true, of course, today. As God looks upon us, if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, he, he no longer sees us in our sins. He sees the blood of Christ. He sees the, the righteous sacrifice of the person Jesus Christ. And he sees righteousness that doesn't come from us, but righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. Our value, our value is, is found in Christ. Now, in fact, let me, let me make one more point as we look at what's happening here when we say that the Lamb of God is, is a substitute. We know that, that uh, death is, is necessary to deal with sin. And so sometimes we might look at the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. We'll talk more about this. But we might look at the, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament and say, well, um, apparently a person was saved by offering this Passover lamb. In other words, a person was made right with God by by doing something. They had to work. They had to earn it. They had to sacrifice in the right way, or they had to, um, you know, prepare the sacrifice in the right way, and, and that's how they were found righteous by God. And no, that's, that's not the case. Remember, we're talking here about the gospel, the gospel seen even before Jesus Christ coming in the New Testament. And here in Genesis 12, we see the gospel. Moses and the people are, are not found acceptable because of some works that they've done, but still, they're found acceptable by their faith. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 28, it says, well, verse 27, it says, By faith Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. Then it says, verse 28, By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Even here in Exodus chapter 12, as they kind of see the beginnings of the sacrificial system, it's faith. It's faith. It's not our works. It's not our ritualistic obedience. It's faith. It's faith in the Son of God, the perfect Passover lamb. Now, let's, let's talk very quickly about God's grand plan of redemption. Just a few words here. Now, remember where we are in the story. Uh, we are now entering as, as, as this, this new element, this, this new uh, idea of, of, of sacrifice is being developed to a new level. And we, we see the idea of this lamb and the shed blood providing a substitute. And we're going to continue to see throughout the book of Exodus, and as we go into Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we're going to understand more about the sacrificial system and how we relate rightly to God. I want to close by by showing you the end picture as we look at God's grand plan of redemption and and look at the last the very last part of your bible revelation chapter 22 and you don't understand i believe you don't understand the good news of the end of the bible without understanding the the haunting imagery of the lamb of god at the beginning but listen to what we see here as we come to the end of the book of of revelation says, verse 1 of Revelation 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And so what are we? We're kind of like we're back in the Garden of Eden here almost, a, a recreated Eden. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so what is that? That's, that's blessing. And no longer will there be anything accursed. The curse is over, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, 
and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, for they need no no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What does it mean that the Lamb is there? What does it mean that the Lamb reigns? What it means is not that just there's this cute, fluffy lamb sitting on a throne. It means the Lamb of God, who bore our sins, who sacrificed himself so that we could have a relationship with God, is now reigning supreme. And this perfect, spotless Lamb who brought about our salvation has now completely and thoroughly and forever removed the curse. What a beautiful picture. My son didn't understand the the haunting imagery of the buttons apart from the historical context. We don't understand the beauty of the curse removed without understanding the haunting imagery that takes place here in Exodus chapter 12. We understand that we come into relationship with God through faith in the Lamb, through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lamb. We thank you for the ability to know you through faith in Him. We pray that you would help us to be obedient by your grace. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen.